This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. And we're recording. Okay. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I get very excited. Okay. I'm your host, Erica Lance. Co-hosting with me today is... Mark Muncy from Erie Travels in Erie, Florida. Yay! And our guest today. Oh, incomparable. I actually have a little bit of a fangirl moment that I need to get under control here. Um, so our guest is Bill Fawcett. Yay! <laughs> hey, let's talk about what we're drinking before I forget that, because I forgot it last time. So I actually, I'm so bougie. I went to um, uh, Aldi and found this Winking Owl sweet red wine that's like $5 a bottle. I'm super, super bougie, but I am drinking it out of my drinking with author swag, which is sent to all of our guests. Mark, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am uh, trying to stay up. So I have some coffee shop of horrors, La Petite Mort, uh, which is their uh, vanilla, uh, their uh, French vanilla. And then I've added a little uh, something, something to it just to make sure today goes well. And it's, yeah. Okay. Jim Beam. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Bill, you are drinking something fascinating. Do share well, with us. What I'm drinking is Inca Cola, which I discovered an addiction to while staying in Peru. And in Ecuador, where it's very popular, it's actually a Coca-Cola product. And you can find it occasionally in the U.S. Um, I don't drink because I was a bartender. And after ah. I put myself to grad school bartending. After several years of a Holiday Inn, I don't drink anymore because I saw too many drunk Shriners. <laughs> no, totally. So when you were, okay, so excited. How did you, how do you get this then? Do you have a, never mind, this might be an illegal question. How do you acquire you such things? Well, you can buy it in certain Coke stores and import stores. In Atlanta, there's one called H Mart, any store that does, um, Hispanic goods generally will carry it because it's the most popular drink in northern uh, South America. Oh, wow. And I'm going to have to check this out because it, it has it's how much caffeine? Color. And um, it's got a lot of caffeine. I mean, it will keep you traveling and going. <laughs> it sounds like a gamer's delight. It's, so. it, it's basically good tasting, less carbonated Mountain Dew, which I don't like. So this is my Mountain Dew. Nice. I'm gonna see. We we're talking about Dragon Con seconds ago, and I'm gonna have to go get that when I go to Dragon Con because I don't mind staying up the entire time I'm there. Okay, <laughs> it's a store called H Mart. It's about 20 minutes from downtown. You can get it. Nice. Perfect. I will find it. Okay. So, Bill, for any of our listeners who were living under a rock, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm sure. Okay, good. That was a little bit about yourself. Yeah, would you, if you'd like a little more. <laughs> Just a well, smidge. Let's see. Just a smidge. Going, going back a ways, I've been, been a gamer and been involved in writing since the uh, 70s. Um, got involved with D&D about, about third level down. I knew Gary and all the people. In fact, later I got to know them quite well. But I, we were working off mimeograph pages before the books came out. And... Uh, Wow. You know the and you know the coincidence with Jody, of course, on that, right? Yes, I do. She told me, which is funny. I wanted to march 
in her honor, but it wouldn't go anywhere because there's nobody to march against now. But I would have. I would have marched <laughs> on that. She typed up the DNG player's handbook and monster manual for Gary and corrected his grammar. Didn't change his ideas, I hope, but she corrected his grammar. I never re realized how many of us read her words already. Anyhow, um, about the time she was doing that, of course, she was, Jody Lynn Nye is my wife. She was Brian Bloom's girlfriend, so she was the boss's girlfriend. So I never spoke to her for 10 years after that period. Oh, wow. But um, literally. But around, uh, well, I have started doing articles starting with Dragon Magazine 1 for TSR. And, you know, you always had these centerfolds with a little game thing in it or something like that, or a chosen, I did the first fantasy chosen path adventure in it and things. That was me every month for the first 45 issues. That was my job. Oh, wow. Writing a review column for miniatures. So, and I became a fervent D&D &D player, um, played with a group and then um, um, enjoyed it a lot. And I stayed with them until... 1980, when um, I couldn't stay writing for them anymore because I became one of the founders of Mayfair Games. Oh, wow. Six months after they were founded, I was brought in. And um, I ran the uh, Roll Aids line for Mayfair. I designed most of their board games, like Empire Builder and some of the others. Um, and uh, got a few, we got a few awards for them. And I did that for several years. And while I was doing that, I had gotten into writing uh, primarily left-handedly because I was working with Berkeley because I did sales. And Berkeley <laughs> was our, so I got to know everybody at ACE. And uh, if you ask me later, I'll tell you how I got started writing, but I was tricked into it. And <laughs> it was never a conscious decision. And, and uh, eventually, uh, while I was doing that, they asked me if I, I could help them put together some some fantasy series and some a chosen path series because I knew all about it and that. So I ended up as a book packager um, so that by the late 80s, I was making more money working with the publishing industry. Now, I'm sorry for the monologue on this, by oh, the way. Oh, good. No, don't. Yeah. Don't apologize. The, the public, in publishing, if they had enough editors, they didn't need packagers. What I basically did was came up with an idea, recruited the writers, sold it to the publisher, it got the books in from the writers, make, edited the contents, turned them into the publisher for copy editing. Okay. Yeah. And and uh, and contracted to do them, and they'd want a series on this topic or this topic, and I would create it for them. So I spent fifteen years, twenty years creating series topics based on what they told me to do, basically, or what they felt they needed, or what looked like a good idea that I could sell to them. And it gave me an opportunity to work with a lot of writers and uh, do a little innovation. Um, back in the 80s, you had books by big name authors and books by unknown authors. And when I first started working with Jim Bain, who was willing to experiment at, when he first founded Bain Books, I came up with the idea of matching some unknown authors with a known author and putting books out and seeing if we couldn't get the sales that approached what the known author got by themselves and get twice as many, three times as many books from them. Well, I did the first series and I picked some, some new unknown authors to work with Anne McCaffrey. One was Jody Lynn Nye, which I didn't have any choice because we'd already gotten married back in <laughs> 85. 
And then a couple of newbies around that uh, we thought would work well with her, uh, Mercedes Lackey, Elizabeth Moon, you know, Steve Sterling. You know, just a couple people, just some yeah. randos. That you hired them. Yeah, obviously hurt their career badly. And, <laughs> terrible. This was a terrible idea. Did anybody ever tell you how horrible? <laughs> yeah, well, five, five years later, I couldn't, I couldn't sell something like that if I wanted to because there were too much happening. But I guess, I, I, you know, it's nice to start even a minor variant on the world. Um, so I continued book packaging for the next 25 years until um, I promised myself I'd retire several years ago. So I probably only packaged 30 or 40 books since then. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, I have a hard time retiring. I, I don't. I don't think I don't think somebody should retire. I think somebody should play the play the game of life they want to play. I mean, I've also during that period, I founded two different software companies. Did a role play game for AOL. Uh, did a number of board games, a couple of apps. Uh, recently, working on another one now, or bringing one back, and um, generally kept into the uh, software business. Uh, um, mostly in the late 80s and 90s, before it got so expensive, you couldn't afford to be an independent company. Now you need a $3 million just to start a game that, because of the, the, the immensely improved quality and graphics that you have, which I'm happy to have as a player. Um, so I also did that for years, and I still dabble a bit. I'm working on an app, as I said, and uh, helping some, some people with some role play games or back to paper games on occasion. Um, okay, and- I gotta ask a question though, since you talked role play, because we're both gaming nerds. I actually just started up another game with some authors, friends of mine and stuff like that. But um, what is your favorite class to play in D&D? What do I play? Like, what do you like to play in D&D? What is your go-to, like, I'm gonna play this? Well, what I, I like to play generally is a paladin or an anti-paladin. I was going to say a paladin? Yeah. But what I normally get stuck is the cleric who leads <laughs> the party and heals them a lot and does a lot of chanting yeah. because I'm willing, to, um, I'm willing to let other people take the chances while I, I think about how we should have handled that puzzle. <laughs> I love it. I mean, oh, shoots the prime minister, you know, they get the king. So I've, I'll stand behind the throne. Um, what I don't what I don't play are fighters. That's interesting. My favorite class is a rogue by far is a rogue. And the other one I like is a druid. I like druids. Um, help create druids. And <laughs> <laughs> a few things like that, so it's, you know, gray hair. And um, they're, they're fun. I just, uh, since I cut my teeth on the first books, I'm, I'm a classicist. And I, 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 by the time AD&D came in, I was, had bad habits. So I play the original types. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that. I tell people regularly that I started playing when it was a box. You played way before I did. But started playing was a box set. And we had to color the dice in with crayons so you could read the numbers. Yep. And mm-hmm. it's funny for... Um, you know, of course, seeing all the dice and things like that that people have now, and Jody held up her vast jug of epic dice. You know, we did a brand of dice. We did made a lot of sales on it. I gave her forty pounds of the overruns. That's just the remnants 
uh, because we've moved so many times. One Halloween, I gave take all the dice you want out of a jar for every kid who came to our door. And that was in the 80s. It was very popular. I bet. For a buck and a half each. Yeah, no, I was going to say, if I'll I knew back. that, I'd be like, hi, where's your house now? Yeah. I just realized my Crown Royal bag full of dice is out in the car. I normally have it right with me, but we we, we yeah. just came from a game yesterday. But I do remember the dice, and I still have a, a permanent scar on my right foot from a Forsyter. Forsyter. The Caltrip of dice, yes. Yes. <laughs> I said it's very ungaming-like things. Um, so uh, when I'm not doing all that fun stuff, I've been writing a series of books on the great mistakes in history. Which and is, editing others, including 100 Stumbles in the March of History and books with titles like How to Lose a War and How to Lose a Battle and You Did What. That's um, fantastic. Great, uh, look good on paper, which is engineering mistakes that change history. I've, I've got this theory. If you don't mind my diverting. No, it's Go for it. Over here. Theory that most of what happens in history is not the result of the brilliant plans of our leaders. Look at our leaders. <laughs> and but, but what is what what's happened is because of the mistakes, what went off the rails, what changed what everyone had in mind is what has really affected everything. And I could give you dozens of examples of things that went wrong that are made things the way they are today. You, I can give you a few later if you want. And also you can find a couple of couple of hundred in my books. And the nice part about what I do, I've done 300 section books for Berkeley and eight books for HarperCollins. And I've never run out of material. No, you no. never do. And the good part is I won't do anything within 20 years. So I'm about to include the 90s now. Nice. So they, then I write about mistakes and they just keep making them. So it's really great. <laughs> I had somebody tell me one time there's no such thing as a failed experiment. Because you learn something and you learn whether you do it again or not. So you there are there is no experiment intrinsically that's a failure, but there are scientists who failed to learn from them. There See, that is much more eloquently put than I just put it. Hence the reason you're the brilliant you are. What is your favorite one of those? What is your favorite mistake somebody made that altered history? Oh, there are so many. It's 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 Really hard to tell. I mean, um, I, I would probably say that, uh, well, one that altered modern history was a mistake, uh, was having a bad temper, getting, calling them off. Uh, can I take two minutes to tell it, or is sure. that what you're asking? You, you, do? Oh, here. you can take yeah. 40 minutes. Well, I'll, t I'll give you a World War II one. Okay. And then I'll give you a couple others. But this World War II one is that RAF was losing the Battle of Britain bad. I mean, the general, the, the marshal who was in charge of Northern England, had announced that they had about three weeks left. Oh, wow. The, the Treasury of Britain had been was being shipped overseas, and Churchill and the cabinet was getting ready and learning how to speak Canadian. Okay. <laughs> and they were ready to bug out and it was that bad. What was happening is they, the German Luftwaffe was bombing the airfields, the radar and the fighter factories. And they were winning. They were putting the airfields out of action and they were killing pilots and 
the ones who rose against them, etc. And then at night, they could bomb things. Well, there was a two Heinkel bombers that their job was to go bomb an airfield in southern France, or southern England, rather. They'd already conquered France. Southern England. They were flying at night because you didn't get shut down as often at night. Flying a Heinkel over against Spitfires, hurricanes was not a healthy job during the day. So they were on their own flying, and they could not see where they were. Navigation was done by two radio signals, and it was 30 miles accurate sometimes. So when you go so long, if you can't drop your bombs, you just dump them out. Why? Because you can fly higher and faster and get out of there quicker. So that's what they did. They looked down. They couldn't see anything. They dropped their bombs. They had drifted over a blacked out London. Now, up until this point, both the Germans and the British and everyone else had honored an unwritten agreement to not bomb the other's population centers. These two bombers bombed the east side, killed a couple of dozen people, blew up a bunch of buildings and a few docks. So it looked like it was on purpose. The British were furious. The Germans didn't know. They bombers came back and said, we dumped them over the countryside and came back. Sorry, we'll go back tomorrow. Okay. The British are furious. So three days later, Churchill organizes about 90 Wellington bombers to go over the North Sea along the Baltic and fly in and bomb Berlin. Now, they weren't real good at it yet, to be honest. Um, In fact, the only casualty in it was an elephant in the Berlin Zoo who had a heart attack from the explosions. (laughs) Uh, But it had come just a few days after Gehring had gone on the radio and said, if anyone bombed Germany, we are so good. My Luftwaffe is so great. You may call me Meyer. You may call me a Jew. That was a common phrase. He's a Meyer, but he's a Jew. Okay. Hitler was furious. Goering was furious. The next day, they ordered Galland and everyone else, he had the head of the fighters, to start bombing London and ignore the airfields, ignore the factories, ignore the radar units, just punish them and force them to quit by bombing London because obviously it's what the British feared if they did it. The pressure went off the RAF. They are able to recover. And Eagle Day a month later was a total disaster for the RAF. The tide of battle turned, and we all don't speak German with a lockstep. Wow. Because Hitler and Goering lost their temper because two bombers went off course, and they didn't even know about it. That is amazing. If that had not happened, there's a very good chance that the invasion of uh, Germany would have worked. Salian would have worked. And World War II would have either ended or... Uh, it would have been us and Russia alone fighting them, and it would have been a very long, bloody war. Wow. That, that is, they would have got the bomb, too. So That is fascinating. So that's, love- that's one recent that I thought was an amazing change of history. Yeah, we, we, we uh, I remember did, uh, one I remember is the, uh, was way back, the Roman Empire with a, uh, where uh, Brutus's positions are like a communication from his commanders is dropped on a field and uh and one of uh uh octavian's you know later augustus guys finds it 
and literally knows exactly where his forces are, knows exactly how many they got, where they're positioned. And it's just like, and it was just because some guy changed horses and left it on the old horse. Simple oh, mistake. Yeah. Otherwise, the Roman not Empire might still be around. Cigar. Not wrapped in three cigars this time. Right. Oh, yeah. The three cigars of Civil War. That's a classic, yeah. too. Yeah. It's a blunder that didn't make any difference because the union was so hesitant. Um, yes, you can You can do a number of those. By the way, I'll, I'll give you an insight irony into history that isn't necessarily um, a mistake. But Brutus's mother, when Caesar was young, had was having a massive affair with Caesar. She was married to someone else. And Brutus bore an amazing resemblance to Caesar yep. and was, in fact, being groomed to be one of his heirs politically. And Caesar always had great affection because he was pretty sure he was the daddy. Yeah. Well, that's part of why he was shocked with Etu Brutus. And because Caesar picked Octavian over him, is also part of why he was a little bitter in joining the rebels. Yep. Wow. Roman Empire is crazy. And uh, didn't was it was it Rollades that had a supplement on that? Pardon? You guys did a supplement on uh, the Roman Empire, I believe, for D and D way back. Uh, we did awesome. some some Roman stuff for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember that Palladium, was we were doing a Roman Empire campaign with that. Palladium did a whole campaign with it, not us. Oh, okay. I, I was we, getting the two. Computers. We did dwells and wizards, dwarves and wizards. wizards. We stuck for, you know, reptile people, all sorts of things. But we stuck pretty much within the non-historical context. That's right. Yeah, wizards was the supplement I remember the most. That's right. I remember that. That was one. fun. Okay, was so great book. We we talked. You know, we, we talked like five million years ago. So you talk <laughs> about why you don't drink bartender so you worked at, um uh with D, D in back in the beginning the beginning days back in the day when being a nerd was not nearly apparently as cool as it is right now whatever i think we all have really good nerd cred though because it you know now everybody's like i'm a nerd and they're like that's so cool and i'm like did you get shoved into a locker shut up <laughs> I have no idea what we went through but what Explain how you accidentally fell into writing because that is so pivotal in your everything you've done. How do you fall into writing or get tricked into it? Was it a double dog dare? That's what I want to know. Was it a double dog? No, no, no. It, it was to get something else done. I I had been the representative to Berkeley um, back when they hadn't absorbed every other publisher in New York, and I was called Patman Publishing, and they kept buying companies. Um, working with the ACE people a lot because of what we did. Well, I started dating one of the junior editors. And oh. I was there. I'd come in for Tuesday meetings Friday, and we'd spend the weekend. And, my, you know, I was one of the partners. I could get away with doing it. So um, knowing we were, I was going to be in and seeing her, but she had some work to get done. Susan Allison, the senior editor at the time in charge of Ace Books, looked at me while I was in meeting her and said, um, take this book and tell me what you think of it. It was drack. Oh. Badly written cliches. It had been obviously blown out in three weeks by somebody, but it had elves in it, so they published it. And I looked at it and went, this is horrible. I write these whole modules and I could do a better job than this. 
And Sue just looked at me and said, yes, that's what we thought too. Here's a two book YA contract. I'll need one in six months. Wow. That was my first books for them, Sword Quest. And um, after that, it just sort of happened off and on. And then I started doing anthologies because I was already doing, uh, then I, I got into the, more into the books because I did licensed products for Mayfair. We did a Drake Drake game, a McCaffrey game, a Joe Haldeman game. We took their top books, you know, I did a Hammer Slammers and a Forever War, um, Company War with Carol and Cherry, et cetera. And um, so I ended up doing some anthologies because they came to me and Sue, they came to me and said, hey, you're doing all this. We need science fiction version of Thieves World. So I created the fleet. Oh, wow. I recruited all my buddies and, and then they recruited their friends. So suddenly I'm editing books with Paul Anderson in it and Gordy Dixon because Dave Drake knew them and made me suffer for that, I might add. <laughs> um, um, well, I, you're sitting home, now picture, you know, little young nerdy me, scared to death that someone's going to figure out I'm faking it. Still am, but that's another story. And um, we're all just faking it. No one's grown up since I believe about 7 BC. And we're all, everyone's just been faking it ever since. We're acting like we think we should, but we're still kids inside. Oh, yeah. oh that's so true. never changed. And the whole adulthood thing's a myth. Anyhow, um, and I'm sitting home. In fact, this is after I'm married to Jody. So we're both sitting there. And the phone rings. And I, we just sent out the invites and David is saying, take care of you. And I pick up the phone. Now, I've not yet been published. I am total fanboy. And a voice on the other end goes, hi, this is Paul Anderson. I'm in your fleet book. What do you want me to write? And in a burst of absolute brilliant conversation, I said, whatever you want. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to need a little more guidance than that. So I told him a little of the situation and suggested he do something on the ground involving um, some, some recon or something. He said, yeah, I can do that. And got off. And I went, all right. I'm, I'm now blooded, right? I'm, I'm sure I'm tough now. Okay, right? Two days later, the phone rings. And this voice murfles at me. Hi, this is Gordy Dixon. And oh my goodness. I've been hanging around with the Dorsi for years at conventions because I've done stuff with Bob Astrom for years, right? And I go, Gordy Dixon? And I come to attention out of my chair, and so does Jody. <laughs> you just write us another dragon in the George. We'll be okay. <laughs> At least I didn't oh say whatever you want this time. <laughs> you know, this is one thing I have to say. So starting and doing this podcast and getting to meet you, getting to meet your amazing wife. She was just such yeah, an I amazing. I like her too. <laughs> well, I hope so, because I insist that you keep her around. But um, <laughs> She keeps me around. <laughs> That's the hard part. I have to say, the author community, I'm not saying every single one, because I'm sure you have stories, but... The author community in general is a really interesting celebrity community because I think a lot of times authors are like, we're getting away with this and they're paying me money to do this kind of thing. Like, Only recently and only a few authors have ever thought they were celebrities. Yeah. 
and I won't even go into who, you all know. But um, I've never met an author who thought he was important. I've, I've worked with, with some of the most brilliant people that I admired long into my life, some of whom were even still alive, amazingly enough, like Silver Bob, Bob Silverberg. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. I had an opportunity to do some anthologies with him on time travel that were just amazing. And I, I loved them. And it was great to work with him, established a long friendship. And um, you, you don't get more noble in our profession than him, but you'd never know it talking to him or meeting him or just being around him. Remember one day I was taking a guy who was the sales manager for this new company called Wizards of the Coast. They hadn't gotten their product out yet. Oh, I haven't heard of them yet. Yeah, to meet some <laughs> science fiction writers. And I, 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 he was all fanboy too. And I was like really sophisticated five years in, right? <laughs> Ten years in maybe. And um, but I, so he was trailing along and I said, here, well, I got to talk to this guy. So brought him up and we had a nice conversation with Bob Silverberg and then said, well, take care, Bob. And we walked off and I go, oh, by the way, do you know who that was? And he said, no, I said, that was Bob Silverberg. What? You know, and, and it was great to blow his little mind. Um, so um, I, I bet but, you've but had you had many know of unless you knew who any of these people were that they were anything but just another nerd. And of course now, after, well, I hate to tell you how long I've been at this, but uh, five years over 50, after over 50 years, um, some of the nerds I hung with are now those people you know. Um, William Keith used to come into my hobby shop that I founded. Um, and, bought, and we put his art up on the walls, him and Andy's art up on the walls, because he'd let us display it free, his space art. And he, and he ran his uh, traveler flyers off on our Mimeo machine. When oh he goes on, used to hang I mean, out at the game store. I've all these out, people, yeah. and now they're, like, important. And how did this happen? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And... Yeah, like you were saying, like the celebrity, you know, the celebrity authors and stuff. I, I remember Harlan Ellison. Everybody used to give such grief about Harlan. And he he came up to me at one point. He's like, you've been ghostwriting for, you know, three years now. You are a writer. Stop ghostwriting. Write something on your own. And that was, uh, and uh, and I'll never forget that. That was like, that was my Harlan story. Is he just, he's like, he's like, I've read three of your things. You ghostwrite, write. You know, just take the ghost off. And it was just, I, I have seen Harlan angry. I cannot say that I ever had anything but wonderful regard for him. And we were friends, not close friends, but friends. And I, I've yeah. always admired what he did. And he went out of his way to read and encourage young writers yeah. every day of his career. hundred percent. He was like one of my first reach outs that you know responded. I was like, Oh my God. Harlan Ellison. Yeah. And that's, and I, so I knew he was one that you knew too. And that was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. He was a, uh, he, he was, was amazing. He was, he was, he was when he wasn't mad at you, a super good guy. Yes. yes. <laughs> as long as you caught his references. If he, if you made a reference, an historical reference that you didn't get, then he would oh, go off for three hours. Him. He wasn't mad at you. He was mad at your teachers. <laughs> he, he, once, he once said really good, but you blew the end, you know? Yep. Oh my goodness. Okay. We have to take a quick break. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com 
or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. one thing and then let's let's you know inappropriately grab science fiction but um what i think is just fascinating talking to you and talking to jody is like the enviousness of the experiences you guys have gotten to have with the people you've gotten to have where on some levels it was just a casual normal relationship and for those of us that are hearing this and i'm sure mark feels the same way we're like this would be a time travel um swap bodies wish to go experience some of these things that you've experienced because and it's so you guys are so amazing okay i just that's a fangirl i had to do that for a moment all just people. We were all friends. We played. We we gave each other a hard time. We got mad at each other. We 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 accused each other of cheating on the die roll, whatever, on a regular basis. It was just people. Um, and the amazing part is, you know, when I met, did Jody tell you when I met her, I didn't know any of her involvement in gaming. No. 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 She left that part out. She knew I was at Mayfair. She didn't tell me a word about it. She said she knew about it. She had, was in a D&D group. That's all she ever told me until we were practically engaged. And, and it, after I met her, I decided I would take her to Winter Fantasy and impress her with all the important people I knew. Now, the magazine was in a different building, so I never saw her at the other building when she was in. So we get to Winter Fantasy, and we walk in, and I'm about to introduce her to Jim Ward and Skip and Kim Mohan and everybody and say, hey, look, this is the guy that's at. And Jim Ward comes running, rushing up, pushes me out of the way and hugs her going, Jody, we haven't seen you in forever. And suddenly I realized I had to totally revise my plan for impressing her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I I would love to be there for that kind of moment. Let's talk about sci-fi. You realize the price is getting old. (laughs) <laughs> you can have all these moments, and when you're my age, you'll have had them, and people you, that were your age now will tell you what great moments you had because of the people you interviewed that they only know as legends. You know what? You say that, and one of my philosophies in life, and I say this to all people, the only thing that I want at the end is so many amazing memories that I can't even think all of them in a week and a month and a year. Cause when in the end it comes down to it, that's really what you're sitting with more than anything. And so I love this. Like this is way better than anybody giving me a giant gift or anything like that is having this interview. I will nerd out about this interview for so long <laughs> yes. until I show up at Dragon Con in whatever form it is. And I'm going to be like, I'm Bill America. And You're I'm six feet tall. So it'll be more show. like, hi Bill America, but it will <laughs> Well, there nobody will care. I'm just a minion. Uh, no, that is not that is not a correct statement. A senior minion, but a minion. Um, there you're a legend. But let's talk about sci-fi. Okay. So you you talk a lot about fantasy and creating that. So let's talk about it's it's interesting when you're talking. Actually, I want to go to another subject. Let's talk about your writing. So somebody goes, hey, you can write this better. You should do that. When you sat down and started to do that, was it a totally, 
Like, did you have to adjust or anything from the modules? Because the modules are stories. You know, we've all played the modules and stuff like that. They're stories, but they're not the same kind of layout. I have read my stories and my my YA books and chosen paths and stuff again since and been embarrassed. But I have to say that I can I've always been a storyteller. I hung with storytellers like Bob Astrid's not a technically wasn't a technically great writer, but was a brilliant storyteller. And I, I learned reading and, and following and I learned from reading. And in those days, only the masters were out there, you know, you couldn't get a, a great B book because it had to be enough to sell to make a publisher do it. And there weren't enough of those nerds buying them. Um, so I would say, no, it wasn't really that difficult to sit down and write it because I had an idea in my mind of what they should be. And it was a lot closer and simpler and more linear in those days too in a novel. Um, the sophistication of plotting is, wasn't, wasn't yet necessary to make a book popular. Yeah. Um, read early Heinlein. And um, <laughs> as, which I would, they, they're what inspired me and I admired them. But some of those, as young adults, you know, Farnham Freehold is not a book I will hold dear forever. Um, anyhow, um, so no, what, the writing was not difficult to start in. What was difficult was writing it on my Apple, original Apple. Yeah. Oh my Five God. Five and a quarter inch discs, each of which held about 3,000 words. Wow. And it's funny because you think you back to the dot matrix for dot matrix. I was say, my first my first ghostwriting was dot matrix on a Commodore 64. <laughs> Nightmare memories. Oh, God. No, but I remember opening my Commodore 64 and thinking I was the shit. I yeah. remember reading my 906 baud modem and like I was a god Fuck. amongst. I'm going to log in. I'm going to play Mines of Moria. 9600 baud look at me i think i bought a computer computer just to play populous yeah oh man yeah can't go wrong with that which one required it but only one had it and i bought it just to play that game peter molyneux man there's a there's a great so you made all later the on i did some but back then i just couldn't resist oh, man. and um a lot of you know a lot of the people who, who were writing those early things went on to either be real big in that field or become writers. So, yeah. What was the, you said you worked on a game for AOL. What was the role-playing game? Was it Neverwinter or was it something uh, else? No, it was called uh, Shattered Light and it got barely released. It was a build your own world game yes. and AOL canceled us with uh, in, in beta. It was done. And we threw it out from another company and because AOL closed their gaming division. Yep. So we took it and Simon and Schuster bought it off us and put it out. And their gaming division failed six weeks, six months later. So it got totally orphaned, but they had the rights and they wouldn't give them back. So we just walked away, having made a lot of money on AOL and a little on them. Um, but they. Uh oh. Oh my goodness. I opened a Pandora's box. Yes. Oh my yes. God! Oh wow, that's incredible. The whole box. To playing in my favorite franchise of the period, which was a game called Might and Magic. And Magic. Yes. And we did this one. You did Might that Magic, one. Swords of Zine. Yes. Um. Um. Which was basically 
uh, follow-up. And I actually know how that ended. I think I can probably even tell now. If you'll remember, you spent the whole time looking for the ancients to help save the world. Yeah. And you oh flipped God. over to the other side of the world where it was tougher and you kept looking at everything. Well, the guy doing that and I spent like two weeks in a hot tub, basically, in, Holly in California, <laughs> discussing where it would go and plotting it. And what, what was going to happen in that was would be today a cliche, but would have shocked the gamers then. Excuse me. And that is that when you got to the very end, which never happened because the company went under West End Game, Wyatt, what was it, Wyatt West something, or New World Games went New under, World New World Computing. Um, not because of the computing side, but because he was in the car racing business too, and he had a problem with it and lost his, lost all his money, basically. Um, when you got to the very end, which is the one that didn't get done, you're going to go into the temple where you would meet the ancient ones, and you would look up there, and it was you on the wall in giant granite figures. Because what it had done is you had been trained to be the ancient ones, and we're now ready to take on the bad guys. And, nice. say, and be the guardians of the world. I remember, and this was all derived in a hot tub. What? This was all put together in a hot tub. In his office in a hot tub in the evenings every day for nice. about two weeks. Nice. Well, I have a question. We're going to go back to sci-fi. Eventually, we'll get to sci-fi. But I have a question about the modules <laughs> that I've always wondered. Is part of my inspiration for wanting to be a writer and doing that, obviously... Or maybe not obviously, obviously to me, was um, playing in Dungeons and Dragons and that whole world and being able to create the characters. And a friend of mine actually literally wrote a four-part series based on a D&D &D game we played where her character got changed into a vampire. She was terrible at it. But um, how many of the modules were either based around things that had happened or inspired by things that had happened that you then wrote. I assume you mean happened in a game. Yeah. Okay. Well, or in real life. If you're writing no orcs in real life, that could be a thing. No, I, I didn't want to disillusion you. Um, <laughs> okay, seriously. It's all I, it all starts in a tavern. Probably a third were based on gaming experiences, including two of our most popular campaigns in Roll Apes, which, by the way, was named While Drinking Too Much Beer to Michigan. The Royal Aids Game Aids, Royal Aids Modules. Um, and um, we woke up and we named it. It was embarrassing. Um, I was accused of thinking of it, but I can't remember. So. Awesome. Anyhow, everyone blamed each other. Um, most of them were basically designed because of either an interest of the author, the writer, or because we wanted something like this, what can you do? And a lot of it was to make the line balanced. That's a lot of how it works in publishing too. If you submit a book, it can be the best book they've seen in weeks, but if they've already got six other similar books they bought, they can't put it in the line because the line will be unbalanced. You've got to get a variety in the modules. You got to get a variety to appeal to people so they feel that things are different. They're not doing it over again or reading it over again. When you made the modules, did you have, do you beta test them? Do you have people play them before you publish them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We often um, would drive to a convention and, and set up a table and run one three or four times during the convention to, um, 
just get the general response and make sure there was nothing that confused the players and then go back and do it before we laid it out and got it ready to print, particularly since we were doing hot wax in those days and you printed type out on a fancy machine and then put it level on hot wax and then took a picture of the whole page. So a page could take two people three days to put together. So it was a slow and painful process. So we had to get it right. Changing it meant cutting something out of the hot wax, remelting the wax and putting a new thing down. When, when you came up with this idea to take a very well-known author and an unknown author and merge them together, because I think that's... It's desperate to make money. Especially at the time when <laughs> you didn't have... Well, listen, it's cloning. I'm going to get to sci-fi, Mark. I'm going to try to... Try. No, he's just, he sci-fi. had the, the best answer right there. Left, do what you can. Yeah. But, you know, when you did this, it was... It is revolutionary for that timing period because now they're self-published. You didn't really self-publish that. Nobody knew it would work, but Jim Bain was a very brave publisher and it worked magnificently. Yeah. Before that, it was like, it was what I was doing was ghostwriting, you know, where, you know, a big name would say, Hey, can you, you know, I've got an idea, you know, flesh this out for me. I don't have time. And that was from the school of, or created by. Well, mine was all Don Pendleton executioner and stuff like that. Oh, Oh yeah. Yep. So you come no, up with this, you have the young writer. 500 a book. Yeah. Hey, it paid, it paid my way through college. <laughs> I think they still pay that. So, so scary. I, I think it's about the same. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Eric. No, it's a, no, you guys are going. I'll just, I'll oh, no, it's fine. We're good. We're good. It's your show. <laughs> when you're, when you're doing this and you're approaching, you know, the writers, how did that go? Were they energetic and excited about it? When, when you're like, Hey, we want them to do this 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 partnership um generally yes because you proposed it to people you knew would be conductive conducive to the idea that would like it and we're willing to work with other people so some people you could some people you couldn't um it depended on the individual's personality but the ones who did that almost everyone i talked to was really quite excited about doing it. And another group that was always excited were pairing a creative actor and uh, a writer for what we, Bain Starline, where we had Jimmy Doohan and Steve Sterling, um, Michael great. Scott and Armin Shimmerman, which Armin went on after we did the three books, merchant books with him to write first the Rules of Acquisition book and then two more quark fantasy books, science fiction books that were actually published. Uh, and became a writer and has six books to his credit now after we worked with us. Wow. Maybe the most fun was Peter Jurassic, who couldn't deliver a straight line. Oh. William Keith and I worked with Peter Jurassic. We did one book called Diplomatic Act. And oh. it's about an actor who is kidnapped by aliens because they've seen his show and think he's a brilliant diplomat and they want him to lead their fleet and their nation. And it's an actor who played one. It sounds so very familiar. Galaxy, and not going to lie. And they replace him with an android robot. Oh, so you even got and some last starfighters. Understand humanity, but can't forget a line and can mimic anything. And so, as a robot, he's a great success. And as a diplomat, he uses theatrical types of things to fool the other side and win. It's a great very book. Cool. But Peter very was cool. absolutely insane to work with. He Lando in um, yeah. Bad Five. Do you, um, when, so let's talk a little bit about sci-fi. I'm eventually getting there. I'm going to drag us there. I feel like 
little kicking and screaming. So, you know, there, there are sort of different schools of thought on sci-fi because there are some really deep, entrenched, very math, science kind of sci-fi. And then there's the suspension of disbelief kind of sci-fi. A little, I'm probably doing this horribly, and he'll be like, why yeah, did you that, make that, me go that's on that a, show? But Silverberg described as Santa fantasy many go. years yeah. ago. Because, you know, you talk to some sci-fi fans, which, you know, I love how fans are different, but sci-fi fans, man, they will call you on your details. It's very hard to call somebody on the details of a fantasy book unless it's part of a world with established rules, right? Because <laughs> you could be like, a butter makes everything taste like milk chocolate, and they can't, how the fuck do they call you out on that? Like, they can't do that. But sci-fi, they will be like, let me explain, if you're trying to explain the propulsion system, why it wouldn't work. So, oh yeah, you're talking to a person who writes nonfiction history books. Remember, right? Any slight mistake, poof, you are deluged. I had a typo. Uh, president's name got changed in a book I wrote called Oval Office Oddities, from Madison to Monroe, and I must have gotten twenty letters and a review on on um, Amazon saying, "Don't take a bet. This guy's got one wrong in it." I mean, it's a 125-page book, or 225-page book. There's one mistake on page 11, and he might, that's what got yep. mentioned in the review. That's and yes, you get that in science fiction, too. I'm, I'm currently work, just finished as of tomorrow, because I'm doing one change in it on one scene, uh, hard military science fiction books set 30 years in the future using the... Um, the um, now abandoned future soldier program making it work from the military with the exoskeletons and the outfits and everything and uh, a postulated good battery source and uh, i had to run it by three hardcore 20-year veterans of three different branches to make sure i didn't get anything wrong for their technology their technique that kind of thing and I just finished incorporating the last of the changes, which went from including how many grenades you need to clear a 30 by 40 room. It's No, but it's great that you actually reached out to people who know the answer. I think a lot of writers underestimate the importance of research. Even if it's sci-fi or fantasy, yep. if you're talking about some piece that then has to work, you, you have to talk to people who know what they're talking about. Um, actually, my experience is most writers over-research and waste too much time and could be doing a lot more. And I'm talking Weber and Korea and used to be Drake, but not anymore. Um, and Sterling, for sure. Um, we'll spend much more time researching than I could justify on, on what comes out of it. But they, they, it's, it's a mindset. To, to have everything in place in your head before you can pour it out. How do yeah, you write? Are you Do you plot your books out? How do you write? Three-page uh, summary and then try and see where it ends up. This, <laughs> this last one, the beginning and the end are the same as I plotted. The middle has no resemblance whatsoever in <laughs> any way as the people and the technology take care. I remember Jody sitting on a couch once. And all of a sudden, she's writing along an ocean. She goes, ah, they're going to get married. 
And I went, what? Yeah, this character and this character in my book, they're going to get married in the book. And I didn't even, I didn't even intend it. And I went, wait a minute, you're writing this book. <laughs> said, yeah, but it's what's right for the character. Yep. The way I wrote them up, this is where they go. And I went, then it is. And that's what I found, you know, like on this one, um, someone I thought would be really important isn't. And someone that I threw in at the beginning just as so they could be shot at turned out to be one of the main characters in the point of view characters in the book. And it just evolves that way. No, I, I think that's fantastic. I, as somebody that is um, at on my very best days in Outliner, that's on my very best, I actually have to put something together. Most of the time, I'm not an outliner. Like, I can envision the beginning and the end, but I don't, like, I have to start writing, and then I, I guess I get brilliant ideas as I'm writing, and I'm like, this is so much better than what I had. I think I would be terrible if I had to stick to an outline. We're a storyteller writer. And if you take a step back and think about it, and I pointed this out to other writers, we're the storyteller and we revise because we're also the audience. Yep. And so we storytell and then we go back and say, no, I'm not responding well to that just as a entertainer. And I, what I, I've had a few other careers that I mentioned. I was a dean of students at a college and have advanced degrees. And I speak on cruise ships about pirates, Roman history, and things like that as well. Right. In Atlantis, I'm considered an expert. Um, oh, we're going to unpack free, that in a minute, my friend. <laughs> I get free cruises. Um, anyhow, you, you watch your audience and you respond to it. When you're writing, if you think about it, you're your first audience. When you go back and read or change it or think about what you're doing and decide to change it, you're reacting to your audience. You're entertaining yourself by writing it and reacting to how you react, responding to how you reacted to what you wrote. No, well, that makes a lot of, that's actually very true because one of my pet peeves as a reader, this has always been a pet peeve of mine, is I don't like it when the author does something that completely pushes me out of the story. Like that's my thing when I, when I'm like completely like this is, my, and then I have to keep reading to get back in, in depth. I'm one of those readers that wants to like used to not anymore because I'm old, but I used to be able to, I'd stay up for days reading the same book. Like I couldn't put the book down. And the first book I did that with was Ender's Game. Actually, I remember like I could not put Ender's Game down. I still love that book. And I, you know, I've heard all kinds of reviews, but I was so engrossed in that book in the story that it, at no point in time, unless I actually passed out because needing sleep. Did I put that book down at night? And I stayed up till, till um, a new Larry Korea book that I wanted to read, the Black Sword series, which is uh, discusses ethics and attitude and culture a lot. Um, 4 a.m., got yelled at by the wife, picked it up at 3 and put it down at 4 that night. Could not stop. And uh, had to be up at nine to drive somewhere the next day. So she had words for me, but mostly, boy, were you stupid? I totally understand. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, yes, of course we do. Me with the Eric Flint books. Uh, any 1632 comes out. Oh, I, yeah. I gotta. I, I'll, I'll be all night with with the him and him and David's. You know, David Weber's. I'll, I'll be right up with those. Yeah, well, I've been that way all my life. The yeah. weekend of finals, my junior year. 
I was in the anthropology section to look for something and someone said, hey, you like anthropology? You should read this fantasy book by Tolkien. Oh, that's it. I finished Monday night without studying anything for the Tuesday anthropology exam, which I only got a B plus on and because of it and didn't regret it a bit. Nope. So what, okay, what do you have degrees in? Let's, let's unpackage that little, little. Degrees? You mean a academic training? Yes, academic training. Nothing You're... after 1972. <laughs> so I don't think any of it's relevant. <laughs> well, history, you... history um, political science, history minor, uh, English minor, political science major, history and English minors for an undergrad. I took extra courses. Uh, graduate work in student personnel, which is a combination of counseling and administration. I did not get a doctorate. I didn't wow. get my doctorate. So, the phrase is ABD. <laughs> it ain't worth it. Yes. Oh my goodness. What? What? And you're an expert on Atlantis. I just read about it, got fascinated by it. I've been to Santorini several times. I give a talk on it, pointing out that if you combine Santorini and the wave that hit Crete into one event, you've got what was described as happening to Atlantis. Oh, wow. Absolutely, totally. Because when Santorini blew, it blew, sunk, killed everybody in the area. It put a 300-foot wave, the 70 miles across the Mediterranean, where it hit the Minoan, which was the most advanced culture of its time. They had multi-masted ships, they had air conditioning, they had plumbing, they had sophisticated writing, they had totally equal men and women for all positions. And this wave hit the center of their culture on Crete and pretty much knocked it out, just totally, totally broke it down. Their defense had been their fleet and their fleet was gone in a flash. And within months, Crete was being raided by Greek barbarians who were in small ships that they practically had to row, but they had a lot of guys with swords and, and the Minoan culture basically collapsed. They were known as the Sea Peoples. Oh, wow. Things. And if you haven't read about the Minoans, they're fascinating. But if you go to Crete and you go to Santorini and see what happened and read the details, then you go back and read Aristotle, you realize that what he's describing is what happened first on Santorini and then to Crete when it lost in the flood, island submerged. Because a 300 foot wave means everything basically for five miles from the shore was washed back into the ocean or smashed. And their entire civilization was basically thrown back into to primitive conditions. And then the ash fell and they couldn't raise crops. Oh, wow. And they didn't have the ships to get food, so the culture collapsed. Um, and and you can understand where Aristotle says he got it. Aristotle said he got it from the Egyptians, who were telling this story to this yokel yes. from Greece, who was not, that was, Bronze Age Greece was not a sophisticated place. No. This, and this was their great thinker who knew, didn't even know the world was round, yes. which the Egyptian didn't know him for a thousand years at the point he is asking him about it. He still thought it was flattened on the shoulders of Hercules. Okay. So you're, you're, you get that and you're, 
talking to him, of course they gave him a great story. I mean, you've got this Greek yokel with his jaw down, and you're going to fill it all in and take all the things you can and shove it in, just like a New Yorker will do to anyone visiting their city. So that's where we get Atlantis. But it's based on this. So if you want to visit Atlantis, look at the crater at Santorini, then go look at what's left of the city of Gnosis and stuff, which did survive, but most of their culture and their trade and everything died on Crete. And you've pretty much got a, a perfectly definable background of it to explain where the story came from. Wow. What made you decide? I know from what you've said, you, you, you like history love history possibly i'm saying the wrong words this is what happens when more than half a bottle of wine see me um <laughs> what made you decide to start writing about it writing about the errors in history and stuff what made you kind of go that route from you'd been writing a lot of fantasy and stuff like that what made you go i'm going to write about all the idiots in history always loved history was going to read about it anyhow and i got married and had to make some money <laughs> <laughs> So I decided to monetize my interest. Yep. And because I'm not a very reverent person, I wrote these tongue-in-cheek sort of historically accurate, but not very reverent books, all about mistakes all through history because no one else had. Have you been approached by the guy from Drunk History? Have you done a Drunk History? He doesn't drink. No. Can't do it. No, you know I've, what? I've done, Mark, shut your face done, right now. When the books were coming out, they'd set me up for 15 or 20 radio interviews. Yep. I mean, which are less embarrassing than when I did making contact, what to do if a UFO lands in your backyard, which got me some really wonky interviews and appearances. You're, you're talking to my people now. I, I was on Coast to Coast AM and all that with my eerie Florida books and everything. Yeah, I, and I'm going, never again. Uh, when, when, when the gal wanted us to get together at the end of my talk at the Barnes and Noble so we could reach out telepathically to the aliens behind the moon, I, I, I got out of there and canceled uh, my next two. Oh, it was, those are my peeps, man. That's that was little... an intellectual exercise to me. And I also lived in Evanston by the Institute. Nice. So I, I could tap all the material. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's I got. um yeah, that's my, my group. I'm big but with the tinfoil hat crowd. You, you, the, so. the trick is to take what you like and find yep. a way to make money on it by yep. writing about it. Mine's all folklore and history. So that's, you know, that's where I, I, I'd been into the folklore aspects. And so. Exactly. 100%. And then you also get to deduct all the books and all the games relating to it. Yes. But I know that when I was younger. You, you wouldn't believe my library. <laughs> yeah. I can I, only I, imagine you and Jody have got quite the collections. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The movers hated us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about fans for a moment. So you you went with the tinfoil hat crowd, which are Mark, Mark's like people. And um, some very serious scientists who are interested in the topic too, and some very intelligent yeah. people. Yeah, exactly. And there's, yeah, you know, like I said, you know, I, 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 I talk about them, but they are some of the, some are brilliant and you know, really amazing stories that I get. Yeah, and, I, I even know some on the show that aren't that dumb. Um, they just know what they're doing. <laughs> Dave Childers told me at a Gen Con 25 years ago, I'm going to be writing some weird stuff. Don't hold it against me. It pays. Yep. Um, and now he's on Ancient Aliens, yes. one of the creators. Um, yep. Fans. Your fans, specifically. I don't have fans. I'm not that famous. Jody has fans. I don't have fans. Oh. That is cannot possibly be accurate. 
Absolutely. I can't fangirl and you tell me you don't have fans. I haven't put a science fiction book out in almost 25, 20 years, close to 25. I'm just approaching two. I'm doing that and I'm co-authoring a mystery novel called Ghost Town. Who are you co-authoring it with? Uh, a gal named Karen Herkey is a very talented indie author. And, Karen? Um, it's a great premise. We're having a fun ton of fun with it because it got my history involved again. You're in a town, small town, Gridley, Illinois, a river town on the Illinois River. And um, they're thinking of putting uh, the next airport that's in, near it, uh, near from Chicago. And um, there's a murder. And the, ser the sheriff has to investigate it. And she's come back to the town where her family was from because of a bad experience as a Chicago cop. So she's back in town, chief investigating this murder. And she hears a voice. And what's happened is there is another town sort of superimposed over the town where those who don't totally pass on stay as ghosts. Most stay in a location, but her great-great-grandfather great was the mayor of the town. Oh, wow. So he gets to travel the whole town, and he's been overseeing the couple of hundred ghosts that have remained, most just passed through, and, and been there. And he pretty much given up on his family, his descendants, which are the only ones that could see him, until she came back, and she was actually interesting. So they get together and solve the murder, basically. Nice. So it's sort of a Cosmo Topper meets uh, Perry Mason kind of detective thing. Love it. And um, he gets to make comments from a 200-year-old perspective, basically. He's just post-Civil War. And she's a modern woman. And, oh, wow. Uh, so they get to interact, and he gets to observe things. And he talks about bare-knuckle politics. And he means bare-knuckle politics. And, and she gets to complain about chauvinism. And he keeps thinking, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> what, what is the name of this book? When is, and when is it coming out? Uh, neither of them are sold yet. Oh, We're writing okay. both on spec. I'm writing Never Again, which is the armored book. And I'll probably deliver it to Bain sometime in the near future and see if they want it first. If not, I'll put it out from Prince of Cats or one of the good, or uh, Wordfire or one of the good small presses. Yep. And uh, Ghost Town will take to a major thing. It's called Ghost Town. And um, we, have, we have a lot of fun of it. Um, by the way, his girlfriend's still in town too. We have oh. ghost love scenes. Nice. Um, now there's a whole. Now it's Erica's field there. Yeah, I was going to say now it's my kind of book right there. <laughs> now, it's a cozy. Nobody dies on scene. Nobody does it on scene. Yep. Fade to black. Appear again. I will still be interested. Just saying, it can go up a notch in my mind. It's okay. okay. That's what books are for. Is imagine That's what the cozy books are for. That's what the cozy books are for. Implied. Yes, absolutely. To insinuate but not show. Yep. So, have you had gaming fans? I, I, it... there are people who like what I've done, but you know, I'm, I'm just a minor player who walked around, around with the big players. I'm not a big player myself. I've, I've done, you know, games like my, my Empire Builder Railroad series was very popular and still is. And there's card games I contributed to, and there's other ideas I had that have come out as games and have done well. But my time was, the kids who tend to be fans don't even remember my games came out. Yeah, that's my, my ghost writing. 
Yeah, my ghostwriting stuff was for Pace Setter, which you guys reprinted as <laughs> it went with Mayfair with Chill. And yeah, yeah. and um, and it's like well, nobody remembers the, I, I the Pace Setter stuff, but they remember the the Mayfair. And talk with me all that. But most of my fans are writers I've worked with yeah. who who I've written checks to. Yes. Which makes me dubiously but right really popular sometimes. Yeah, no, that's a good way to get popular. Well, let's talk a little bit before before um, this one's over and I go into my rapid fire questions that don't go very rapid fire for long, but um, what got you involved with DragonCon? Uh, I have a bad habit of organizing the room. Yep. Do you ever get a sheepdog and have a party and it tries to hurt everybody into one room? Yes. Well, before I was in science fiction or before I was any of this, I had a career in the um, training industry. Well, after I, I after I was a professor and a dean, I discovered how lousy it paid back in the '60s and '70s, back in the '70s in particular. So I went I, when I, I I had a training marriage before Jody, and um, oh, one. and when we got married, I had to make more money, so I got a job as a training instructor, which included running all very quickly evolved into my running all the events for a couple of major insurance companies when I was in their training department, uh, employers of Wausau and then um, Baker's Life. And um, it meant I ran events, you know, 500 salesmen and speakers and dinners and which ones you allowed special services from the hotel and whatever. I had to handle all of that stuff and catering. And so when I started going to cons, which I did after that, as I got into the D&D more uh, and during that for a while, I began pointing out things that could be done or helping with something and very often ended up sort of organizing something. And I was helping with a bunch of stuff and doing some stuff. And for some reason, evidently, I don't intimidate well. And... Um, <laughs> The person running DragonCon at the time came in and said, "I need somebody to to run to, to to help and keep track of and keep in line Dino De Laurentiis." Oh my! Oh, when it just come out. So he said, "Can you can you do that for me this show?" And uh, I said, "Sure." You know, I'm just a guest. I paid for the badge. Says, "I'll take care of it. Just do it." So I did, and the next year it was. Um, um alice cooper nice and so i got involved with that aspect of it and that got me to know the other people on staff and eventually i evolved away from that person to working with some of the other people and they began asking me to help with the sort of do that and now we're into the the, the 90s and dragon kind of starting to grow and we're into this and jody's with me now of course and we're doing panels and then we're helping to run panels. Then we're helping to organize panels. And then uh, when Pat Henry took over many years ago in the middle of the last scandal, uh, he said, Bill, <laughs> I, I want you to come on board as a senior director without, so senior advisor. I'm the only senior advisor on the staff. I'm not really a director. I just carry a director badge. And I basically take care of anything they want, including like they said, all right, create something that'll work for the Dragon Awards. So I did. So wow. I the Dragon Awards, which I will plug profusely because there are People's Choice Award, yep. Dragon Awards, um, 
and uh, look for them on the net. And it's open to anyone to vote and nominate whatever you want. And we've gotten an amazing mix of books and people nominated from uh, Mary Cowell to Larry Correa. So it's open to anybody and we're getting literally thousands and thousands of votes, um, six, five figures of votes. So uh, it's a people's award and I'm very proud of how it's working out. Although last year has been a bit of a strain, our numbers were down. Something well, do nobody coming to the con. Yeah, I, that, that's understandable. I think. Which, by the way, we are planning live this time, but we don't know what restraints will be under. And if you haven't signed up, you should, because if we have to cap it, we'll stop selling attendance. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, no, we, I think both of us put a little thing in to try to come yep. on as, as guests and we'll it's see. It's a bad year for that because we don't yep. know how many people we're going to yep. get. So we're not taking a lot of new people that weren't yep. in last year because we owe it to them. I don't think anyone's going to listen to me anyhow, so I'm safe. Yeah. Well, we'll that see. is not an accurate statement at all. I'll just I, tell you. I think you'll be surprised. I'm absolutely filled with false humility. <laughs> but again, to your point, that I think that a lot of uh, the, not every author, you've encountered them, but I think that it's a very humble group that is so excited just to be around other people. No, it's a publicly humble group about public appearances. Yeah. And, egotistical and intellectually non-humble group about having the nerve to write something you think someone else will read. But our courage is in different directions. It's not built in our, our appearance strength. It's built in our mind and what we can produce. Fantastic. That is sheer brilliance. And I am going to end on that note because that was brilliant. Bill, if somebody wanted to um, cyberstalk you, where is the best place to do that? It's almost impossible. <laughs> I don't have a Facebook that you can find. I don't do any other of the major media. I've got, I, I, I took my website, mistakesinhistory.com down to be revised. And I'm not sure it's even up there still. So if you want to cyberstalk me, attend Dragon Con. <laughs> I, that is there. brilliant advice and I love or that. Or Liberty Con if you can get in. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity to make a thousand and nine statements and try and sound like I know what I'm doing. You sound way more like you know what that you're doing than I do. So. <laughs> uh, that ain't well, I'm just better at making it sound that way. I've had more practice. That's, that's true. You have been brilliant. Okay, this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been Erica Lance. I've been Mark Hudson. And we'll see you next time.